0: It's easy to wear, affordable styles that celebrate the ultimate family man, along with the quality, durability, and sensibility dads appreciate. Available online Saturday, May 4th at jcp.com and in-store Thursday, May 16th, just in time for Father's Day. Limited time only. JCPenney, make it count.
2: Welcome to Trickoration, a production of iHeartRadio. Trickeration. Welcome to another episode of Trickoration, America's favorite podcast about deception in sports. Most likely the only podcast about deception in sports. No need to check on that. Please keep the tips coming about specific episodes you'd like to hear. We're currently hard at work uncovering the story of Danny Ainge and the One-Eyed Horse, as well as Madison Baumgartner's off-season rodeo escapades under an alias. If you were messing around with horses, I can promise you, trickeration we'll find out about it for today's episode i will be speaking with angels phenom jim abbott about some serious inside baseball trickery a really fun conversation much of which was about one pitch jim threw 25 years ago that led to a foul ball enjoy the show
3: major league baseball is a business people are going to sniff out any weakness any advantage they can find and it's it's tough you know we romanticize the game but believe me you know these guys will rip the shirt off your back if they can and and uh you know so you've got to stay on top of it you've got to be able to you know uh not allow any sort of advantage to go the other way
2: For people of a certain age, the name Jim Abbott brings back a lot of memories. If you were a young baseball fan in the 80s, you were mesmerized by Abbott, the stud lefty born without a right hand. Regardless of your team, you rooted for him. In backyard games of catch, you imitated him. An Olympic hero, a top 10 pick, and the rare player who went straight to the majors without a stint in the minors, big things were expected of Abbott. But in the end, his decade-long career was just okay. For one game, late in 93, however, Abbott had him fooled, tossing a no-hitter in Yankee Stadium, the shining moment of a ho-hum career. But it almost didn't happen because somebody broke the rules.
3: When I was young and just beginning to pitch, (laughs) probably with blue jeans and tennis shoes on, it was a Little League team, and the opposing coach instructed his players, one after another, to bunt the ball to bunt the ball back at me over and over again. And it was not subtle, and there was no (laughs) deception involved in the signs down at the uh, third base coach's box. He just yelled, bunt the ball, (laughs) bunt it. But at some point, it became apparent to everybody in the ballpark what was going on. You know, he was trying to exploit what looked like a weakness, and I was a little embarrassed, I'll be honest. I like to think of myself as being like anybody else out there and I was proud to throw every one of those kids out at first base. <laughs> as I got older, I worked very hard on fielding. You know, Not only the comebacker, but fielding bunts and you know covering the bunt down the third baseline, which is a difficult play for a left-handed pitcher anyway. I tried to work on it over and over and over again. And I was not going to be a liability on the field for my team.
2: Honed and perfected at an early age, the sequence of things Abbott had to do to field a bunt down to third was exhausting. After releasing the ball towards the plate, the glove went from its perch on his right arm onto his left hand. Then after fielding the ball, he'd flip the glove back to his right arm and grab the ball as it fell to his left hand. Then he'd whirl and throw to first ahead of the runner, tearing down the line, the opposite of a picnic. One writer at the time described all this as a series of little moves as intricate as the workings of a music box. Yankee Stadium, September 1993. A meaningless dog day afternoon game against Cleveland. And Abbott's got a no-no going. So one of the Indians attempts to take a bat to Abbott's music box.
3: I was normally a pretty stoic competitor. But in that game, for whatever reason... I was pretty lighthearted. I had been joking around with my teammates. And then by the fifth inning, the sixth inning, all the laughter died.
2: So we, we go to the eighth inning and you finish off the eighth and head to the dugout. What's going through your head in that time in terms of how excited you are, or nervous or whatever, but also planning ahead for what you're going to face in the ninth?
3: After the eighth inning of the no hitter it is very difficult to describe the the emotion uh the hopefulness that you have the excitement it's like it's like having five of the six numbers you need to win the lottery like you know i've got this one you know the countdown i've got this one i've got this one i've got this one what's that last number gonna be and that's what it felt like. It, 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 was, it was that much excitement. And so when that ninth inning comes around, uh, we run back out on the field, you know, three more outs to go, but the top of the lineup was back up. Kenny Lofton uh, led off for that team, uh, you know, one of the great players of our generation, one of the most dangerous hitters in the American League, and a guy who gave me a lot of trouble in my career. He was a left-handed hitter. He was lightning fast on the base pass and down to the first baseline. And he was my first and foremost problem. And part of his game was, was the drag bunt, you know, to drag the bunt down the third baseline or, or the first baseline. And, and, and so Kenny came up and, you know, I threw a first pitch uh, slider for a strike and, and then he bunted the ball. Luckily for me and luckily for the Yankees, the ball trickled, foul on the third base line, and uh, it was a heck of a moment. I've watched the replay since, and I've seen a little smirk on Kenny's face as the Yankee fans uh, booed him mercilessly. And from the top row of the of the uh, of the bleachers,
2: when I read this moment, I just, I mean, I, I couldn't believe it because people really don't like a bunt in a no hitter to break it up. When he bunts the ball, just take me through exactly where everyone was and why you guys weren't playing this play that knowing Lofton was
3: totally possible. I do think the fact that it was a no hitter in the ninth inning, the bunt took a lot of people by surprise. You know, I think that that's sort of a one of those unwritten rules. Obviously, the Indians are looking to get. People on base and bunting would be part of that. But in a no hitter, uh, that's not the way we were going to defend him, particularly down four to nothing. You know, bringing the third baseman in is going to open up some holes. And if he's swinging, it's going to allow for, you know, a few more different scenarios might open up. So um, I think, we, you know, we kind of played it straight up. Like this is just the way you would play in a four nothing game.
2: Since these unwritten rules are not written down anywhere, it's hard to know where and when they apply. As Abbott says, you're not supposed to bunt down four in the ninth, but how about if you're down three in the seventh or two in the eighth? To try and settle this debate, I called legendary sports radio host and the author of 100 Greatest Sports Arguments of All Time, Chris Mad Dog Russo. Hello? Hi, Christopher Russo calling. How are you today? Chris, thanks for calling. Matt Waxman. Yes, Matt. How are you? Okay. I'm doing great. I got a, a couple of questions. Yes. Um, Jim Abbott's no hitter. Yep. Do you remember what Kenny Lofton does in the um, top of the ninth?
0: I remember the game. You know, that was over a holiday weekend. I was at the Jersey Shore.
2: Um, Abbott comes out, first pitch, throws a slider, and Lofton squares around a bunt. 4 nothing game. And yeah, it's the wrong thing to do. Yeah. But I don't like that when players do that. Not at 4-0. nothing. is a point where, you know, the game isn't over yet, but that is not the time to bunt, especially with a guy who's, who's got only one hand. If it's 2 nothing, I can understand. Because, he's a, because the time when it comes to the plate after he gets on.
0: So, and I don't remember that being a big story at the time.
2: Uh, I don't remember making a big deal about it the following Monday when I was on the air, mm. but I don't like the play overall. Thank you, Chris. I appreciate some time. Matty, good job. Keep up the good work, pal. I asked Jim if he thought his handicap played a role in Lofton's decision to bunt in that situation.
3: My one hand had, in my mind, had nothing to do with it. It had nothing to do with it. I do not think that he was trying to exploit my inability to field a bunt. So let's take that off the board completely. Now, somebody may try to attach that after the fact, but for the competitors who were on that field, nobody believed that. Nobody made that association. So, you know, the bunt in itself, um, it is what it is, and and I'm glad it didn't stay fair. I think looking back on it, he's probably happy he didn't get a hit in that situation. I think, you know, there might have been a certain stigma to that. I know it sounds funny, but it's just the way the game's played. There was something about that game that seemed kind of meant to be. And that ball trickling foul doesn't surprise me. It doesn't surprise me that as as good of a bunter as he was, I don't know how many butt hits he had that year in his career. He probably had, you know, a couple hundred. But it just wasn't meant to be that day. I, I don't say it disparagingly towards Kenny, but if I would have lost that moment because of a bunt, uh, it would have been awfully disappointing. You know, I've never seen Kenny after, uh, you know, in person after that. Um, I've never talked to him. I've never heard anybody ask him about it. Um, I really don't take it personally. I really don't. It, there's no grudge there. And, and I hope this doesn't sound weird, but it adds a, another layer to, to that game. I'm actually happy that he did it because it, it adds to the story.
2: I, 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 it's like a sliding doors moment where if this weird ball spins a couple inches one way, you know, the, the course of human history certainly would be different.
3: That no-hitter has, in a lot of ways, changed my life. Um... It, it has really been a touchstone for, for me to call upon and for a lot of other people. Uh, I think it lent credence to my play and my career and, and and not just participating, but being good. To think all of that would have been lost on a bump, it seems as though that would be really difficult to, to process.
2: All right, time for a short break. When we come back, Abbott talks about how his inability to hide the ball in the mound specifically affected his career.
0: This is it. We've got an Amex Platinum Pro on our hands, ladies and gentlemen. We haven't seen anyone relax like this before in the Centurion Lounge.
3: you know I, I know we're interested in, in in this discussion of talking about deception and doing things that people can't pick up on um, you know from my own personal journey hiding the baseball behind my glove i wasn't able to have an open mitt in the windup or the stretch and put my other hand in there and hide the ball uh, as most pitchers do so uh, in the windup, I kind of held the, the glove in front of me and I hid the ball, not in the in the glove, but behind it. And um, while that the batter couldn't see the ball, the base coaches could. My grips were exposed. Um, so that became one of the major challenges for me. Major League Baseball is a business. People are going to sniff out any weakness, any advantage they can find, and it's, it's tough. You know, we romanticized the game, but believe me, you know, these guys will rip the shirt off your back if they can. And, and, uh, you've got to be able to, you know, uh, not allow any sort of advantage to go the other way. I could have been a much better pitcher. I believe, um, had I learned a really good change up and, um, One of the problems with learning a changeup for me was hiding the grip behind the glove and not tipping it too early.
2: So what is it about the changeup that you couldn't hide, that you could hide, say, the slider or the cutter?
3: As I went into my windup or as I went into uh, the stretch, my two fingers were basically established on the seams. And to go from my fastball to my slider I really only had to move my first finger on my left hand over about an inch and then I could apply the pressure that way. So I could make that adjustment as I was putting my hands above my head in the windup or as behind the glove in the stretch. And it was too late for that little movement to be uh, conveyed to the hitter, you know, by either somebody on base or by the first base coach or third base coach. So, I could do that with my curveball. I could do that with my slider. I could do that with my fastball. Um, the changeup, you know, whether depending on what changeup you throw, and there's a thousand different ways to throw a changeup, um, but the, the, a really good one is the circle change where you have, you know, you, your thumb and forefinger are in a circle and your other three fingers are on the ball. And it's, it's, it kind of effectively takes the momentum off the ball. And for me, that was just a more difficult grip to establish. Uh, without showing the whole world that it was coming. So the first base coach presented an issue for me because that was where the ball was most exposed. As a left-handed pitcher, you're kind of facing that way in the stretch. And, you know, the ball was behind my mitt, So the first base coach could see in there. But um, guys on our bench would watch the first base coach to see if he was trying to send signals to the batters. And, you know, sure enough, I came back after one inning and, you know, they said, hey, he's 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 telling them what's coming. He has hands on his knees and a fastball or standing up on a curveball, whatever it was. The next day in batting practice, I had a little bit of a skirmish. I had a, I had some words with the first base coach. He denied it. And I just told him, I said, hey, you better be sure, you know, you better be very sure because next time. You know, there's, there is a way to defend that, you know, if a batter thinks a curveball's coming and all of a sudden the fastball comes in up and in, they don't like that. <laughs> so there's ways for a pitcher to defend yourself.
2: When was the realization that this inability to use deception with the changeup was going to really affect your success as a pitcher and How frustrating was that for you?
3: Uh, My slider was, it was a pitch that came off of that cutter in uh, just a little more depth to it. uh, Looked like the same cutter, but then it dove in. It was a put away pitch for me. And then I had a slow curveball, and and all of those grips were very similar. Um, Had I been able to command the outside part of a plate to a right hander with a ball that dove away from a right hander and went into a right hander, a sinker for me, or a change up, um, you know it would have changed my career.
2: and if you were coming up today, do you think this is the kind of thing that that scouts for teams would have been able to foresee, even though you were dominating at the college or Olympic level, they would have foreseen that this was going to be Uh, a problem for you or would your career have been roughly the same now as it was back then
3: what would it be like today i believe it would be even more difficult with technology and uh, ipads and the way that the pitchers are studied now i believe that the tipping of pitches has become an incredible science i think every pitcher whether it's you know Clayton Kershaw or or, uh, Hugh Darvish, the best of the best, have had to fight this issue of how are they getting these pitches? You know, how are they figuring this out? And so I do believe it's because of the cameras that are available now, all the different angles, the quality of the video. And, you know, it's just guys can be sitting on an airplane flying to the next city, watching every single pitcher, watching every single signal.
2: Abbott's friend, Black Jack McDowell, a pitcher on the White Sox, went so far as to devise a contraption to help Abbott avoid tipping his pitches.
3: Jack actually devised for me, although I was a competitor, this piece of leather that used to hang down off of a catcher's mitt that protected their wrist. But he devised to put it on the fingers of my mitt. So it kind of created this block that people couldn't see inside there even more. It wasn't just my regular mitt, it actually had this you know, a little piece of uh, this attachment. And I looked at it and I started working with it a little bit. They actually actually talked to the American League about it. You know, would this be legal? And they approved it. They said, yeah, I wouldn't. There's, it's not adding anything, giving anything to you that you, nobody else has.
2: And how far, did, how far did things go with this attachment? How close did you get to using it? Or did you use it and you didn't like it?
3: I was with the Yankees at the time. And, and I started playing with it and, you know, I talked to my pitching coach about it. I talked to my manager about it. Uh, I did a couple bullpen sessions with it and I really did try to get used to it. Um, I, I did feel like because I had to switch the glove on and off and catch and throw with my same hand, that it was a little bit cumbersome in, in making that transition. Um, and there was a part of me, to be honest, maybe stubbornly, uh I didn't want any concession. I, I I didn't want um to give the impression that some something special had been given to me to accommodate, you know, my play. And I didn't want word of that getting around the league. And and, and that was probably, you know, just plain stubbornness. And um I, I don't actually you know, feel that great about that decision. You know, maybe it was something I should have pursued more, but it just ultimately didn't end up going past a bullpen session or two or or a few games of catch out in the outfield. But, um, you know, those are the lengths that you go to try to protect yourself in the game from somebody gaining the advantage. And so how would that work
2: with a, a friend who's on another team? They're obviously have their own allegiance to their own team, but then there's a friendship how would that be navigated?
3: You know, it was nuanced, to be honest, as, as nuanced as it can be with Major League Baseball players. If I knew a friend was struggling with something in the game, and I, I don't feel as though I'm putting my team at a disadvantage. Like, I don't think they felt like me hiding my pitches was going to hurt Frank Thomas's chances any more up to bat than had it would have been for any other pitcher. So... I think they felt like there was a certain fairness in those hints, you know, and, and I, I think it could be completely different if, you know, they say, Hey, here's a way to scuff the ball or you do this, or, you know, Frank's really, you know, Frank's hurt. He really can't get around on that fastball or something today. Yeah. That would be looked down upon, but this was an effort to level the playing field. And as a pitcher,
2: what were the biggest limitations that you felt that you had to overcome Having one hand,
3: you know, a lot of people over the years have asked me, do you ever wish you had two hands? And I, I don't, I truly, I truly don't. I don't ever really wonder what it would be like to hold a can and a can opener or twist the can, or whatever, you know, the different things that I've had to find different ways of doing. I've, that's never become a part of my thinking. I've always sort of taken a lot of joy in doing it differently and finding, you know, looking for answers. The one thing that I have wondered about, like, what would it be like to pitch where you have the grip set in your hand before you start your windup? Like, what would that be like to set that split-fingered fastball grip, be completely set with it? and then go into the motion, instead of reconfiguring your grip as your motion is in process. Uh, you know, when I was younger, I could rely on the hard stuff, and I, I lived off that. But the transition to become a, a complete pitcher with a complete repertoire w- was inhibited by not being able to do a split-fingered grip for a changeup, maybe, or a circle change grip, you know, and and so, um, I, I I have thought, what would it be like to eliminate that one little difference? I mean, it, it is what it is, but that definitely played into my career.
2: All right, a special thanks to Jim Abbott, one of the most thoughtful guys to ever toe the rubber. Tune in next week for a harrowing tale of hazing at the hands of Don Mattingly, as well as a first-person account of a team employee who thought it'd be a good idea to mess with Kenyon Martin's ride. Spoiler alert, it did not go well. And finally, if you're liking the podcast, please rate and review wherever you're listening. If you're not liking the podcast, no need to rate and review. Follow along on Twitter and Instagram at Trickeration. Thanks for listening. See you next week. Trickeration is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. This is Malcolm Gladwell from Revisionist History. eBay Motors is here for the ride. With elbow Grease, Eligible items only. Exclusions
0: apply. Thank you for traveling with Amex Platinum. To your right, you'll see Oceanside Relaxation at a fine hotel and resort property. When booked through Amex Travel, you can enjoy complimentary breakfast for 2 and 4 p.m. late checkout. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpresscom with Amex.